Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Hi, this is Karen Brown. Thanks for checking out the Mississippi Edition podcast. If you like what you hear, click subscribe, hit like, or leave us a comment if your app has that feature. Then find other MPB podcasts by searching MPB Think Radio on your favorite podcasting platform. Thanks. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Thursday, July 1st. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, the Mississippi State Bulldogs win the College World Series. Plus, today is the day a number of bills rubber-stamped during Mississippi's 2021 legislative session take effect. We'll look at one such new law and check in on a medical marijuana program that's still stuck in limbo. Then, the history of Mississippi's seafood industry, as told by writer Deanne Love-Stevens. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. At last, there's joy in Starkville as, in dominant fashion, Mississippi State's baseball team secured the school its first ever NCAA championship. The Bulldogs fell behind Vanderbilt in the first game of the College World Series final, but rallied to two decisive wins, scoring a combined 22 runs over two nights to vanquish the talented Commodores. Rick Cleveland covers sports for Mississippi Today. Amid last night's chaos, he tells MPB's Rob Lane that State's win is a historic one. It's a first. They've come close many times. Heck, they've been to the College World Series 12 times. They went to the final game of the women's NCAA Final Four twice. Got beat at the buzzer once. There's been a lot of heartache over that time, that, that period of time. But they beat Vanderbilt tonight, and there really wasn't ever much question about it. They got on top early, won the game 9 to nothing, allowed only one hit. Here's something that I think that probably is going to get overlooked in the overall scheme of things. Mississippi State played the entire College World Series without committing a single building error. And that's the first time in uh, College World Series history that that's happened. Now, obviously, you go into the first game of the series, you get pretty much punched in the mouth by Vanderbilt. They lay a bunch of runs on state in the first inning. You got Jack Leiter on the mound. Things are looking pretty grim. What about this team made them capable of doing the improbable and turning it around? Well, that's 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 been their MO the whole season. Is when they're back in the wall. It's when they play their best baseball. Yeah, they they 
They came back, played a terrific game on Tuesday night. And then tonight, on short rest, Will Bednar pitched a game that's going to be remembered for decades by Mississippi State fans. He was pitching on three days rest, and he went six innings without giving up a single hit. It was phenomenal, really. I mean, and then Landon Sims did what he always does. He comes comes in the game and cleans it up. I think State out hit them 12 to 1, uh, outfield them. Of course, State again was errorless. Uh, Vanderbilt committed three errors. I don't think you can put, uh, uh, you can understate how much of a difference the State crowd makes. Say, you know, you got 20,000 people screaming like it's an SEC football game on every play. Every time Bednar punched a hitter out, it sounded like Mississippi State had scored a football touchdown at Scott Field. Again, I, I, I can't stress enough what an amazing scene it was here. You alluded to that sea of of maroon and white. And it seems to me as though certainly diehard state fans were strongly represented there. But over the past week or so, it seems like state's also kind of become America's team. And a lot of people who didn't even know very much about college baseball or whose team had already been eliminated weeks ago rallied around this team. Why are they magnetic in that way? Around the country, uh, tuned in on ESPN this week and and discovered that there are, there are places where people are this passionate about about college baseball. I mean, Mississippi State won the national championship tonight, but in Mississippi, it's you know the, uh, it's very much a part of, of Mississippi culture. College baseball is, and it has been for a long time. Yeah, you got to. Surely Mississippi State leads the way. Uh, they're the first team to win a national championship. They've been to 12 College World Series. But they are representative of how much the state of Mississippi cares about college baseball. What happens from sure. here? Who's returning to the team? Who will be moving on to professional baseball or other pursuits? And how does this win affect Mississippi State's ability to recruit baseball players? Uh, somebody asked uh, Crystal Lamontis the other day, does it hurt not being out recruiting right now when the coaches <laughs> other staffs are, are recruiting? And he just laughed and laughed and said, man, we don't have to recruit. We're on ESPN every night. They're looking at our fan base. Yeah, we, we, we don't have to recruit. That said, they've got a lot. They're going to have a lot, a lot of holes to fill. They lose great pitchers. They lose, lose great hitters. Uh, they lose guys like Tanner Allen, Rowdy Jordan, who have been, you know, the heart and soul of this program for the last three or four years. And, yeah, they're going to have a lot of holes to fill. But, but, you know, Mississippi State, through the years, has always recruited well, and, and they'll recruit well this time. And it's a – I mean, when people – when a fan base is this passionate about – a sport, it, it almost recruits itself. And I think that's what we've seen with Mississippi State baseball. Rick Cleveland, sports writer with Mississippi Today. Thanks so much again. Okay. Glad to do it. Coming up, it's July 1st. Time for new legislation to take flight. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.
contractor ever tell you the price of something and it sounds so high you think, eh, maybe I'll try it myself? Some jobs just aren't that difficult, and yes, you can do it. If you want to find out how to do those things, listen to Fix It 101, podcast everywhere. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. One law to take effect in Mississippi today is House Bill 633, which establishes medium-term deadlines for which public schools must implement a computer science curriculum. It reflects the view of Mississippi lawmakers that a strong background in STEM, that's science, technology, engineering, and math, will better qualify young Mississippians for jobs in a changing economy. MPB's Desiree Fraser talks with Amy Brown, who leads Mississippi's Career and Technical Education Program. Beginning in 22-23 school year, we'll have 50% of our elementaries and also that all of our middle schools must offer instruction in computer science. So 22-23 would be all middle schools, 50% of the elementaries. And our middle schools are looking pretty, pretty good. We have about 90% with computer science instruction right now. And then the following year... In 23-24, it would have to be 100% elementary, so that there's benchmarks like that. And when you talk about computer science instruction, can you give us an idea of what that is? Absolutely. Yeah, we have in our middle school um, two classes, Cyber Foundations 1 and 2, that replace the old courses that were ICT, Information and Communication Technology 1 and 2, And with Cyber Foundations 1 and 2, that it still has a little bit of keyboarding instruction, Microsoft Office and things like that skills students are going to need. But primarily what it does is it works with the computer science curriculum that's part of Code.org. It breaks that up over the course of the two years where students get instruction in coding and software languages, virtual reality, robotics, all those different areas related to computer science. And like I said, there's two years of that. There's a Cyber Foundations one that's some technology skills plus half of the code.org curriculum. And then the Cyber Foundations two hits some more higher level technology skills in the second half of code.org. And then we also have another course in the middle schools, the computer science and engineering um, that's more tailored to students who want to learn about the engineering design process and potentially move toward careers in engineering. Is this a game changer for Mississippi students? Absolutely. Because STEM and computer science, um, if you look at the careers that are out there and job outlook, so many of what's going to be available to students career-wise in the future. It is technology. It is computer science. Our economy, everything we're doing um, is becoming more with coding. You know, everything from the cars we drive to our staff was just the other day talking about tractors that now have computer coding in them as well. So I think for our students to have what they need to be successful in tomorrow's jobs, they have to have this instruction. And, you know, there's gaps that we want to help close. Um, We have staff members who are, you know, working to see, you know, like we've noticed that potentially, or well, the data shows nationally, but in the state too, that we need to do some work having more females involved in some of these careers related to computer science and engineering. You know, same thing, we have some minority groups that 
you know, may not participate um, at the level that other groups do. So we want to close some gaps there to make sure that students as early as kindergarten, every student in the state gets exposed to these skills where, you know, as they move into middle school, high school, hopefully they'll choose some of these career paths that are going to get them the jobs of tomorrow because everything everything's going toward technology and more coding and virtual reality, and this is skills they're going to need, you know, no matter what what job they work in. And I think it definitely levels the playing field for students in Mississippi that nationally they can do what other students can do with some of these jobs of the future. Joe Nelson is superintendent of the Clarksdale School District, one of Mississippi's poorest. He's excited about the prospect of expanding computer science education, but resources are a concern. We have a mandate. But I'm not sure about the funding with the mandate. You know, we have educational mandates, and and sometimes we don't have the funding based on that. It would be a dream to have a computer science-related teacher from 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 my elementary schools to my fifth and sixth grade school to my seventh and eighth grade school. We have a ninth grade academy and ten to twelve. And so when you think about having a teacher unit for each one of those particular areas, I'm not sure the resources we're getting. Are, are going to be enough to, to be able to accommodate that. That's my concern. And then on the other end of things, having teachers with that skill, uh, is that going to be problematic? A- a- absolutely. That, that, that is a concern as well, uh, you know, due to just not here at Clarksdale, but just in Mississippi period, the teacher shortage that we have. And so we may have to accomplish those computer uh, skills or teaching computer science another way. You know, it may be by using the teacher teaching, you know, by way of uh, video teaching. We're, we're going to have to think outside a box until we can build uh, a system to have teachers trained in that particular area, but also meet the needs of our teacher shortage. Coming up, a look at the medical marijuana program that never was. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Hello, I'm Dr. Nancy Lotridge-Anderson, president of New Perspectives, a fee-only financial advising firm and co-host of Money Talks. For over 10 years, Money Talks has been answering your personal financial questions and sharing knowledge about money management. Money Talks can be heard Tuesdays at 9 a.m. on MPB Think Radio. Podcasts can be found on our website, money.mpbonline.org, or on your smart devices podcasting platform. This is Mississippi Edition. I'm Karen Brown. States across the South are making way for more patients to legally use medical marijuana. Alabama recently passed a law legalizing it, and Louisiana is expanding its medical marijuana program. Today, Mississippi was slated to join the pack, but the Supreme Court overturned the voters' decision. MPB's Ashley Norwood reports on how patients are responding and what lawmakers might do next. 25-year-old Austin Calhoun spent most of his senior year of high school bedridden. The Puckett, Mississippi native says he met with 20 local doctors to try and find relief for the symptoms of Lyme disease. Finally, in 2015, he moved to Colorado where he could get a prescription for medical marijuana. I suffer from seizures, chronic nausea and vomiting, arthritis, and 
THC really helped out with my nausea and vomiting, just keeping that all under control. Last November, 74% of voters in Mississippi voted in favor of adopting a medical marijuana program. Calhoun says this felt like a ticket back home. You know, I started making arrangements to sell my house, and around May, I decided that it was time for me to just come back home and be with my family, and then we had the ruling of the Supreme Court, which has kind of just thrown everybody for a loop. The state Supreme Court struck down the voter-approved medical marijuana initiative in May. It ruled the program is void, citing Mississippi's initiative process is outdated. 37 states currently have legalized medical marijuana. Alabama created its first program in May. Just last week, Louisiana expanded its program to include smokable pot starting in January. Ken Newberger is the executive director of the Mississippi Medical Marijuana Association. He believes the momentum in the region was actually sparked by Mississippi. Well, I actually think that the case became easier in Alabama and Louisiana because of Mississippi. I think we're leading the South, actually. Um, I think we had a small hiccup because of our, our Supreme Court. But I think that the people of Mississippi spoke loud and they spoke first. This type of regional domino effect isn't uncommon. States often study each other's legislation and decide what may work best for them. Mississippi may have spoken first. But now the state is back at square one. A Senate committee has started holding a series of hearings with the goal of crafting new legislation to create a medical marijuana program. During the first hearing of the summer, Republican Senator Kevin Blackwell, who's drafting the bill, says he wants Mississippi to get it right. At this stage, we'll be the 38th state to have a medical marijuana bill. I think we have an opportunity to lead the nation in terms of coming up with something good. Recently, Alabama has passed their their bill, and there's some things in it that are, uh, to me, uh, attractive, and there's some things that uh, were not appealing. Newberger says he's hopeful lawmakers will have a draft bill ready by the end of summer. Until then, Austin Calhoun says he's staying in Mississippi to advocate, even if it means risking his own health. He's had to stop using medical marijuana, which he says controlled his chronic nausea and helped him keep food down. Calhoun says he's already lost upwards of 15 pounds in the last month, since moving back home. I want to do my part to, you know, help out as much as I humanly can and make sure that the people of Mississippi get something as close to what they voted for. I want to be here for whenever it does happen. And the timing is still up in the air. If lawmakers are able to draft new legislation this summer, the hope is for a special session in the fall. But it will take even more time for patients to have medical marijuana cards and products in their hands. Ashley Norwood, MPB News. Coming up, a cosmopolitan history of Mississippi seafood. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Deep South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB public media app. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. A 19th century seafood boom drew migrants from around the world to the American coast. Foreign-born fishermen brought their native customs and expertise to their work, accelerating the pace of industry and transforming the culture the culture of cities like Baltimore and Seattle. Further south, Mississippi's coast also underwent 
profound change amidst an influx of immigrant oystermen and shrimpers. That phenomenon is the subject of the Mississippi Gulf Coast seafood industry, a people's history. The latest work from USM professor Deanne Love Stevens. Stevens says Mississippi seafood industry, like the cotton industry before it, exploded in the wake of technological advancements. Prior to the American Civil War, there was an industry along the Mississippi Gulf Coast involving oysters and shrimp and fish. But it was so limited because of lack of railroads, lack of ice technology, that it only affected the Gulf Coast region. After the American Civil War and with the construction of the Ellenin Railroad, and then, of course, with railroads pushing northward after that, that localized seafood market expanded. So it was at that point that one of the entrepreneurs, William Duque, went to Baltimore. At one time, it was known as the oyster capital of the world to learn who, how, what equipment, all of these things that would create an industry, it was already being done in Baltimore. So with this knowledge, and more importantly, with a new labor source, the Polish workers, William Duquette came back home to Biloxi, and the entrepreneurs opened the first factory. And this is when you began having the first wave of immigrants and others coming into the Gulf Coast. I open your book, the very first thing I see is a picture of two little girls. Their names are Maud and Grace Daly. They are five years old and three years old. And this picture shows these girls, they're dirty. They look exhausted. They look sad. And as it turns out, they were working. A five-year-old and a three-year-old were working. Tell me about them and about working conditions. The workers were all ages. And you see those little girls, five and three. And everybody in the family worked. The family unit, beginning with the workers, with the Polish workers who were itinerant workers who came in by railroad out of Baltimore, they came in every oyster season. Seafood camps, as they were called, were built for them. These were often just crude row houses. Of course, hygiene did not exist. There were outhouses. Oftentimes, there was a shared beehive kind of oven for the women to make the bread. And the workers who came in, beginning with the Polish workers, and for every worker thereafter, through the 1950s and 60s, what you find is that as the boats would come in, each factory would sound its whistle, and the workers knew the whistles. They were then hired to go in by that company. They listened for the whistle, regardless of the time of the day. And the whole family went. No child care existed. So you find little girls like Maud and her sister going into the factory. They went in, and then they picked around, and they became seafood workers. We find even the babies were brought in in trams or carried in because mothers were called to work. They had to support their families. So the children went. You explain how the Polish came. Croatians and Vietnamese, how did they become a part of the industry? Many of the Croatians who appear in the Gulf Coast region of Mississippi 
found their way either through the port of New Orleans or we also can trace them, many of them through Ellis Island. They came over because of familiarity. They already were fishers. Many of them already knew boat working. In fact, they incorporated some of their boat building skills into what was already here and came up with a better boat. Same thing with the Vietnamese in the 1970s, familiarity. They already, for the most part, were fisher people. They knew how to build boats. And again, we see the exact same thing. They bring over their boat building skills. And in 1970s, 80s, you could have found a Vietnamese fisher person building a boat in his backyard, just like you could have found a Cajun fisher person building in his backyard. You have the boat building skills that's part of the culture of the immigrants that are coming over. You have the fishing skills that is part of the culture coming over. And they just transplanted those skills and that culture and that heritage here on the Mississippi Gulf Coast because there was abundant resources. The Vietnamese still has a, a vibrant presence on the Gulf Coast. Is there still a Polish representation or Croatian representation? There, Oh, there absolutely is. All of these heritages and these cultures are absolutely kept alive in the Gulf Coast region. The Mississippi Gulf Coast Seafood Industry, a people's history. We've been speaking to its author, Deanne Love-Stevens, who's a professor of history at the University of Southern Mississippi. Thank you so much. Very interesting. Thank you very much. It was an honor. Thanks for listening to the Mississippi Edition podcast from MPB News and MPB Think Radio. Don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already. And if your app lets you, leave a comment or review. We really do appreciate it. Remember, you can always get in touch with MPB News on Facebook and Twitter. And fresh episodes of the podcast are posted every weekday morning. I'm Karen Brown. Thanks for listening. This is Mississippi Edition from MPB Think Radio.